to remind you, or if you're visiting with us, we're spending the summer uh, in a sermon series we're calling a playlist for pilgrimage. And what it is, is it's a section of the book of Psalms, which of course are songs originally, not just prayers. And they were songs that were written and given for the people of Israel in their daily life to have, to sing upon their lips, so that they would have a way to not only give voice to their experiences, but to shape the way that they thought through and felt their experiences, and not just as individuals, but as a community. So on behalf of the tribe or the other tribes or the nation as a whole or the nations of the world, that these songs were given for them, and especially this section, the Psalms of Ascent, 120 through 134, were given for the great festivals. So a few times a year, people would make a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, the city of God's great flourishing and peace and justice and truth and goodness and beauty and unity, all of the lovely things that emanate from God himself were to be sought there in the city up on a hill. And they would come from their tribes and their daily lives. They would make pilgrimage. They would take an intentional journey towards this sacred destination, Jerusalem, where God dwelled. And they would meet with others and they would celebrate the great events of his salvation for them and of their life, their daily life in the world. And so Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits of the Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, that sounds fun, uh, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, where they would dwell in booths and celebrate all these things. This happened throughout their year. And so season by season, you know, to, anachronistically in North America, perhaps, or the Northern Hemisphere, winter, spring, summer, fall. They would move through these seasons of life in their own life and in the seasons of the year, and they would find themselves making pilgrimage again and again up to Jerusalem. And these songs were the ones that were given for them to sing as they went up. And this morning I want us to see, it's going to take a minute to get back to it, but this is really a song when you're in a season of sorrow. It's a song in the time when you are not experiencing much happiness or joy, when you mostly can see around you the fruits of devastation rather than of restoration. This is a song then about not so much what we call in America the pursuit of happiness, which of course is fleeting, good as it may be, it's still fleeting, but the pursuit of something Christians call joy, something related to happiness but perhaps deeper and different. And it's a song given to be sung by those who are in a season short of joy, short on joy, not quite there yet. You might say it's a psalm about how and in what ways, in fact, joy pursues us. Not so much about our pursuit of happiness and our ability to attain it and to keep it and to always be joyful, happy people, but instead how joy pursues us. But to get there, we're going to spend some time where the psalm does, which is this experience when we aren't joyful. I won't ask you to raise your hand. You can just raise your little mental rhetorical hand. But how many of you feel like you're full of deep joy all of the time, right? I bet not any of you. In fact, there's so much reason for sorrow in life. Suffering and sorrow afflict us on our way towards Shalom. And then like these pilgrims, that's what we are studying. And the reason we're doing these Psalms is we understand ourselves 
as modern human beings in 21st century New York City to be people who were made in and for shalom and are destined for God's shalom, but find ourselves somewhere short of it. And so week by week, we're coming together again, we're ascending together to remind ourselves to keep on the journey of faith, that we're not just here trying to find our own happiness in the American dream and what little peace we can get to compete with everyone else and to hoard it and to be happy until we die one day. That what you were created for, what you were made to do, what your purpose is, is to actually be a part of the throng of people who've set their face on God's shalom coming to this earth. And you are not going to be content until you reach this destination. And in this pursuit, in this path, we will often have sorrow. We will suffer. We will have dry spells. We'll have sadness, pleasure and pain, loss and gain. We will hurt and we will be hurt by others. We will fail and be failed by others. We will try to gain as much good as possible, to lose as little as we can, but there is no guarantee. And so Psalm 126 speaks to the truth of our journey, especially for the long, difficult legs of the journey. And it speaks to us about restoration. This promise of restoration, if you find yourself looking around, you could be looking around at your career, your marriage if you're married, married, your friends, your commitment to this place and to this city, your children, your parents. All of these things, you can look around and when you see devastation, when you see failure, when you see ruin, when you f- see shortcoming, this psalm asks you to take its words upon your lips and to sing it. And it speaks to us of restoration. Very simple trick. Go on Oxford Dictionary, look up restore. But think about how beautiful this actually is, this word. It means a few things. To bring back to a previous right or practice or custom or situation. To bring it back again when you've lost it. To return someone or something to its former condition or place or position. To repair or renovate as in a building or a work of art so as to return it to its original condition. To give. Something previously stolen, taken away, or lost, to give it back to the original owner or recipient. This psalm speaks to us of restoration, and you might ask, what's being restored? And I want to tell you, as we get into the psalm, before we read the the words again together, that it tells us that suffering and sorrow, and you need to hear this, if you're just dragged by a friend today, or you walked in because you heard the music, or you just decided to try us out this Sunday morning, if you're a person that's exploring faith, or just curious because you find yourself here this morning, you need to hear from me clearly that suffering and sorrow are not the way that this world was meant to be. War, poverty, isolation, exile, Sadness, suicide, meanness, selfishness, none of these things are the way it was meant to be. In what I hear are IT terms, I should never use technology uh, uh, (laughs) illustrations, but 
These things are a bug, not a feature of the condition that we're in. See, they are the result of sin and separation from the fullness of God's presence and his love. We were made in his image. This image of Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity and love, serving and praising one another in harmony and bliss and joy and full of generative creativity. We were made in this image. Our original condition is good, beautiful, true, at one with itself and others and nature. This is what we were made for. This is how we were made, and we have lost it. It needs to be restored. We want to see shalom brought back, given back to us to be restored until every remnant of sin and death has been swallowed up in the victory of life that lasts forever. Until all is flourishing, not just you and me, but all people and all things, all creatures, all plants, all things to be restored and to flourish. And I think we need this restoration. I think we need it rather than just stoic acceptance. You know, that's, hey, it's life, kid. What did you expect, right? Instead of that tough chip on the shoulder. Instead, we are meant to long for restoration, which means if you allow yourself to long for your original condition, to even have hope that, really, that preacher guy's up there telling me that this is a future out there that is still available and still possible, if you allow yourself to have a bit of that hope, you will often experience sorrow. That hope in and of itself can create sorrow because we so often find ourselves so far short of this destination. And the danger here is not only having sorrow for the wrong things. There's a New Testament verse that says there's a godly sorrow that leads to great things. And of course, there's a worldly sorrow that just leads to despair. There is a kind of sorrow that can cloud our vision that can just fill up. It's all we can see is how bad the world is and how messed up it is, how it's going to hell in a handbasket, how no one cares. All the people in power don't seem to care. My neighbors don't seem to care. Everyone else seems happy except for me. Why can't I just get it right? And it clouds your vision. You ask questions like, well, I don't know, maybe life is meant to supposed to just be 50-50, uh, half happy, half sad. Uh, maybe I can spread it out, like get a little, just a little bit each day so it's not a big season of just overwhelming sadness. You know, I probably deserve it anyways. Isn't that how karma goes? You start to think these things, and then you start to feel shame. You start to feel guilt. You can get stuck in sorrow. There's no moving through it. There's no continuing on the journey. It bears you down. It begins to break you down. It changes you. It gets in your bones. It gets in your thinking. It gets in your soul, and sorrow can cloud your vision. You feel alone and isolated, unworthy. And some days, sometimes, some seasons, we do let the things that we suffer in this world bring a kind of sorrow that knocks us down and knocks us out for a moment. This is no laughing matter, of course. You can just go look up the statistics about the increasing rates of what they call deaths of despair in America through suicide. But the trick here is that sorrow 
also can be a means to clean, to cleanse your vision. They're basically, or suffering can basically act like windshield wipers, you know, rather than just the storm that happens and all the suffering that happens and you can't see. Sorrow, if you allow it to do its work, can come and cleanse your vision, just like when you blink and you have a little something in your eye and all of a sudden it washes it and you can see clearly sorrow can do this work. And this is the counterintuitive, strange little part of the sermon, but also of the gospel where we talk about sorrow to get to joy. One pastor and preacher that I love to read says this, all great religion is actually about what you do with your pain. Do you suppress it? Do you ignore it? Do you just transmit it on every other unlucky person around? Or do you allow it to come in and to do your work? This is tough because I would suggest to you, for all of its beautiful gains in technology and medicine, uh, wealth and health even in some ways, and all of the beautiful things that Western culture has produced, it's also true that a lot of Western culture is about consumption, and this includes religion, and therefore lots of American Christianity, is actually about trying to maximize happiness and avoid pain and sorrow. I mean, nobody is looking for pain. No one's looking to suffer. I get that. But so much of Western culture, and about the church even, is about ignoring the pain and suffering of our neighbor and the world and of ourselves and trying to get ourselves back in a happy, clappy position and feeling victorious and moving on and getting a word for the day rather than about what we do when we have real and actual pain. There's a new book coming out called The Great Dechurching, an article that was summarizing their read of this book tells us some facts and figures here. This is true. 40 million Americans, 40 million, that's a very high percentage, have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. People that used to go to church have stopped attending church. I don't know what the statistics would be if they took this sampling during and after the pandemic. It's probably gone up quite a bit. That's almost 12% of the population. It represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. So this new book, The Great Dechurching, went around and asked over 7,000 Americans from all kinds of different walks of life, places, political persuasions, whatever else, to ask them why have they left church. And of course you get the obvious answers that we all expect and people give rightly, that the church has uh, tolerated abuse of every kind within its midst. It seems to be bigoted and angry at all the time and just finding enemies everywhere and really concerned with power and uh, comfort and all sorts of things like that. But they found an interesting thing out as well, is that all those things were mentioned, the most common answer given by most of the people uh, went something like this. I'm going to try to quote from the, the, the article here. They find that a much larger share of those who have left the church have done so for very banal reasons. The book suggests that the defining problem driving most people who leave is this. Not a very eloquent sentence, but it's just how American life works in the 21st century. That's what they found. 
they found that people described their lives and they said contemporary America simply is not set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, our culture is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. This system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life, or as you age, the professional prospect of one's children, perhaps. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that simply doesn't add up. I was so profoundly happy to read that because that is entirely my experience as a pastor here in New York for getting close to 20 years. It's not that people hate Jesus so much anymore, they hate the church, although that happens. It's just everyone is so focused on getting ahead and raising their kids if they have kids and focused on their own little thing that they don't have any margin left for anything else. Now, why are we doing all of this work? At least one of the primary reasons, right? It's to not be dependent on anyone else or anything. It's to make sure that we have enough comfort and security and provision that we can avoid pain. And so we hustle to protect ourselves from possible failure and to distract ourselves from any feelings of sadness. And this very workism and focus isolates us. And so we become more and more lonely in our sufferings, disconnected and prone to despair. And so can we learn from this psalm and from Jesus to actually pay attention to these warning lights, these alarm bells going off in the car. Pay attention. There's something wrong under the hood. Pay attention to your pain. Pay attention to your sorrow. This is how you will find the way to joy. And so this psalm is about joy and sorrow. One writer, Ellen Glasgow, in her autobiography, describes her father who was an extremely dutiful Christian and an elder in a Presbyterian church, no less. Here's how she described him. He was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. Now, that's kind of sad, but this psalm tells you, again, that joy is the authentic Christian note. Joy is what we came from, and joy is what we're destined for, it's a sign of those who are on the way toward salvation that joy is meant to be characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus' first miracle was endless wine at the end of a wedding. So what is joy and where does it come from? I've already said it's not from self-created work. It's not from comfort or happiness. Joy will come to us in season as we walk with God on his journey toward shalom. And so let me just hear you the verses. We're gonna walk through them rather quickly, draw a few things out of each one. Verses one and two, you sang these earlier, but I haven't read them yet. So verses one and two. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Joy comes first in the midst of sorrow 
When you're feeling sorrow, when you're feeling suffering, when you're feeling pain, if you want joy, you want to tend to your sorrow, but you still want to move toward joy, it starts by looking backwards. Joy comes from looking backward to remember God's past work that he's done and to remember it now in the present. To remember all that God has done for his people of Israel, all that he's done for the world in and through the person of Jesus, all that he's done for those you've known that can testify to the ways he's healed them and helped them and provided for them, all of those ways when you allow the Spirit to point it out to your attention that he's provided and cared for you in your life and helped you and healed you and helped you to persevere to this moment, to look back and to say, I remember, do you remember that time? We were, we were done with, it was over and the Lord restored us. He restored the fortunes of our people. And do you remember what it was like? We were like those who were dreaming. I can't believe this is true. Do you remember that? I've, I'd forgotten too. I don't feel that way now, but do you remember that moment? Do you remember? Man, do you remember what it was like to have your la mouth filled with laughter? You know that at some point in your life, your tongue shouted out sounds of joy. There was a time you knew what it was like to experience these things. And so remember that the Lord has done great things for us. This is how you begin to let sorrow do its work and to remind you that the present moment is not all that there is. There is a long past of God's faithfulness and his healing and his love. And this will begin to bring that joy back to you a little bit. But also, we remember in the moment the things that he has promised to do. These are verses four through six, and I'm skipping one of the verses in the middle on purpose. It's kind of like a hinge. If you guys know what a literary structure is, a chiasm, the, the psalm actually goes like A, B, C, B, A. So the beginning and the end, and then the middle is the most important. It's the hinge, and we're going to leave that for last as well. But they don't just look back. They sing verses 4 through 6. Because this is true, now we ask you in this moment of sorrow, restore our fortunes, O Lord. As they were hiking up sometimes in the desert, there would be a spring storm, say, and when the storm would happen, it would fill up these dry channels in the desert with water to give life and spring flowers and nourishment on their way up to Jerusalem. And they say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in this Negev. Because those who sow, and now we're in agricultural metaphors, if you go out sowing seeds in tears, if that's what your life is, it seems like you're always just sowing tears out into the world. When no one's looking, I'm in my room at night crying all the time. As soon as I have a moment, I start to feel down and sad. Alone. There's so much I want different for myself and for this world. Those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. Any person who goes out weeping will come back bearing the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. And I, I messed that up. He goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing. When you go out in the world full of sorrow, little seeds that are planted everywhere, 
sorrowing over the migrant situation, sorrowing over the fact that mayors and, and uh, governors and all sorts of people don't seem to care and use them as political pawns, sorrow over the way we mistreat the earth, sorrow over the way we hurt each other, sorrow over the fact that you don't even live up to your own ideals and hopes for yourself. If you go out taking the seeds into the world and you pay attention to them, the promise is you will come home again one day with shouts of joy, that those seeds of sorrow will be like sheaves of laughter and joy, a harvest of beauty and happiness, bearing them with you. And this is a promise, and so joy comes from looking forward. It's a trust and anticipation of God's work in the future. It's trust that he'll do it again and do it again and do it again. It's not based on your present circumstances alone. It's on deeply knowing the character of God through Jesus. And all the small experiences you've had where you didn't think you could keep going and he found a way to help you move forward, to keep doing that and to know he's gonna get me all the way to the finish line. I believe it. I believe that these tears aren't meaningless, that they will turn into a harvest of laughter and joy, not only for myself, but for others. That what I'm experiencing now is not the normative or final state. That the end is a worldwide sound of laughter. And that leads to the hinge of the now. Verse 3. The center. What you need to take on your lips this morning. Not only remembering what he's done and trusting what he'll do in the future. But believing this now. Verse 3. The hinge. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Could also be translated, we are one happy people. We, we as a people are happy and joyful. And this is the crux to remember this. It's a statement of faith. Just like you said, I believe in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You might have to fake it till you make it. This morning you may not be feeling joy, but these lips, these words are to be taken on your lips and to say, the Lord's done great things for us. We are glad. You look backwards, you look forward, and you say, I choose to be glad now. Now, this is important because as they sung this, they weren't actually restored yet. They found themselves still in the Babylonian captivity. That's what they're singing of. And when they came out of this Babylonian captivity, even those who'd been there in the old days cried at how uh, bad of a state the wall and the city was in. In that moment, they're remembering, they're said, we are glad. We choose gladness. From this, you can learn the last mystery, which is that in this life, on this pilgrimage, joy is not the elimination of sorrow. That's in the future. What it is is this strange commingling where we allow the sorrow to show us where we need more of God in our lives and to say right here we choose gladness. Right here we invite you and we ask you to open up within us new reservoirs for your grace to flow in like streams in the Negev, for you to come and to bring joy right where we can't manufacture it, right where we can't attain it, right where we can't work ourselves into it. Use your sorrow to dig a spot in us for you to take up space and to bring joy. 
I want you to hear just one specific application out of this. I've tried to walk through the process of how you can face your pain and your sorrow, and I hope that you will. I hope that you allow sorrow to do its work, to allow it to transform you, to pay attention to it, not just to ignore it or numb it or to put it on other people. But there, to have hope that joy will come, you need to hear the important point of the whole psalm, but in part three, and that is he says this. We, when the Lord restored our fortunes, we as one happy people choose to be glad. I close with another sad fact. Maybe it feels heavy this morning, a a song about joy that's also about sorrow. But a recent Harvard study suggests that more than a third of our country feels, quote, unquote, serious loneliness. 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children said they feel serious loneliness. That's a Harvard study. In New York Times, it said that more than one-fifth of Americans over 18 say they often or always feel lonely or socially isolated. We can go on and on about this. You've probably seen uh, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said that addressing the crisis of loneliness and isolation is one of our generation's greatest challenges. They go on to say the research has found that people laugh five times as often when they're with others as when they're alone. Even exchanging pleasantries with a stranger on a train is enough to give a little spark of happiness. Psychologists have found that in cultures where people pursue happiness individually, they may actually become lonelier. But in cultures where they pursue happiness socially through connecting, caring, and contributing, people appear to be more likely to gain well-being. See, you can feel depressed and anxious alone. But it's rare to truly laugh alone. It's perhaps very difficult to love alone. Joy is meant to be shared and sustained by and through community. What we need in our pilgrimage together with God towards Shalom is to share our sorrows and to share our joys to be open to wherever the journey might lead, which will have pain and gain. It will have seasons of sowing in tears and reaping sheaves of harvest and joy. This is a real life. This is abundant life. This is the life of faith. And we can do this because we know that Jesus shares our joys. He shares our sorrows. You might say that he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that we might know he's with us in our sorrow, And that he himself is the one who invented joy, who is the origin of joy, who made us for joy, is joy itself pursuing us, pursuing us precisely in his sorrow, pursuing you so far that he went up what was called the Via Dolorosa, the path of sorrows, to hang on a cross, to make sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He was the one that says, truly I say to you, if a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it might remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That he was the one who sowed in tears and brought laughter and light to life. He was the one who went into a grave and came out with life and light for the world. We are the ones then that can say, when we remember this, that our mouths were filled with laughter that our neighbors might say, look at what God has done for them if we will just stay on this path 
that is sometimes a path of sorrows, but is also the path towards joy. To know that when we reach the God who is Shalom, the world will be filled with laughter and shouts of woohoo and mutual communal rejoicing and no tears. This might seem like a dream, but sometimes dreams come true. May God give you the grace to believe it again this morning and in believing give you joy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for a second. Heavenly Father, it's warm in here and I said a lot of words. I just pray that you would use this time in the service and especially of the offertory for each person here just to be able to reflect on what they most needed to hear, maybe just one thing, to give them encouragement by the power of your Spirit, to help them to take one step forward towards you, towards your open arms, towards life and light and healing and laughter. Give that to each one of us as we offer ourselves to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.